Welcome to Audio Diaspora, which was formerly known as, by the way, The Cypher, but for long-time listeners, you know that already. I am excited today to be joined by Chloe Wangu. She is a global mediator who specializes in underrepresentation, and you all know that that's the thing that I like to talk about. We're trying to bust those narratives. We're trying to reshape it. We're trying to give people, empower people to do what they need to do. And under-recognition. I think we're going to get into that as well. What is the term that you coined yourself in the Harvard Business Review? What is the term? <laughs> under the under-recognition? Yes, it is. I love that. I figured as much. I'm like, how oh, you did? We all feel it. She just put words to it. Um, you are a Nigerian-American and you've explored through your academic career, conflict resolu- career conflict resolution, mediation, philosophy, and neuroscience. Wow. That's deep. We're really going to get into this. And so now you work at the brand scientist. Now I am the brand scientist. You are. (laughs) You work as the brand scientist. Chloe, what is that? Tell us what that is. Yes. So um, essentially what that means is that I leverage my understanding of how human brains work uh, to make my clients as impossible to ignore as I can get them. Okay, so who are your clients? Your impossible to ignore clients. <laughs> yeah, so honestly, it depends. They run the gamut, but often they are underrecognized. Um, so they might be an underrecognized boutique firm. They mm-hmm. may be um, a delegation to the UN whose needs are being sidelined. Uh, they may be an academic institution that is trying to tackle under-recognition within their ranks, right? Um, it runs the gamut, but all of them so, are dealing with under-recognition in some form. So who, who would typically, she says, <laughs> who would typically qualify as under-recognized? Because under-recognized, there are so many people who are under-recognized, right? Like you, it, 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 you could be under-recognized because of your class, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily, you know, figure into, you know, your race in that sense. Mm-hmm. But within the context of the cipher, where we're looking at how we redefine narratives about about black people around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying stay within that narrow sense, but I am curious, like what makes somebody under-recognized? I can tell you from my feeling yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but what is that? Tell yeah, us what no, that is. Absolutely. So, so under recognition, it is the state within which your ideas or your breakthrough contributions, let's say, um, are overlooked or undervalued. And the cause of under recognition, as I've discovered, is um, what I call visibility biases. Um, This is also a term that I've coined. Um, And visibility biases are simply a kind of cognitive bias, right? So I'm sure listeners have heard of cognitive biases or learned brain chemistry, essentially the the click and whir responses in our brain that sort of say, okay, like click, whir, this is how I'm going to behave now, right? These sort of subconscious Um, programming or engineering in our heads, right? So those are all made up of cognitive biases, right? Visibility biases. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. So would that be, I've quoted this before. So it's like my dad saying to me when I was five years old, listen, 
and you I think you've 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 put more 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 words into that in, in a good way or more understanding. It's just like you gotta understand that you look a particular way, mm-hmm. you have a particular kind of name. Mm-hmm. So people are gonna treat you a particular way. And so as a result of that, he said, You got sorry, kids, you're gonna have to work twice as hard. But uh-huh. we know that you're the bomb. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about, so that, right? Yes. And here, let me let me just unravel all of this for you right now. Cause I'm really I'm always Uh-oh. excited when people have questions. Let's about go. This. Let's go. Okay. So <laughs> so So under recognition as a phenomenon, it has two sides, right? It has the cause, right? The visibility biases. And those are basically the things that are happening in people's heads unconsciously that cause them to overlook people like us, right? So a really great example of this is the racial attention deficit. This is not a visibility bias that I discovered, right? This was discovered in some research from 2021. Um, And these researchers were able to empirically demonstrate that at least in America, right? And the study was limited on purpose, right? But at least in America, white Americans are 33% more likely to overlook their black peers for their white peers. And that's even when they've been incentivized to pay attention to those black peers, so one. And when they know that that black peer may help them with a pressing problem because of background information or knowledge that they may have. So when both of those things are true, the gap is 33%. And if you happen to work in person, that gap is definitely higher. Um, Yes, I see a hand. Hold on, my hands up. You said 33%. I did. Okay, so we know it's a lot. But to hear that number is like 33%. Yeah. When was that study? When was that study? 2021. Yep. Yeah. So as to, to paraphrase my friend, she would say, in the year of our Lord, <laughs> 2021, <laughs> where we have at that stage, the world has had its global reckoning. And even though we know like we've had this reckoning again and again and again mm-hmm. and again and again, you are telling me, we're talking in 2023, two years after the fact, <laughs> that, <laughs> that our my peers, my white peers, are technically overlooking someone who looks like me 33% because of the time. What you just, 30, yeah. 33% of the time. As a, so you as, just put up. Oh, sorry. Please go ahead. No, I was just saying, so you just put numbers to the feeling that people have when they go to work, where they feel like they're working too hard or yeah. they're under. Okay. Yeah. All right. As you, as you keep talking, I'm just going to put my head in my hand. Yeah. No. Continue. <laughs> Look, there is a happy ending at the end of all this, but I do want folks to know about the stuff first, right? So (laughs) so the racial attention deficit is an example that I use of a visibility bias because it's one of the sort of the starkest, right? But there are dozens and dozens and counting of these cognitive biases, these learned brain chemistry that happen to us unconsciously. And it's not just white folks. Everyone is like this, right? This is the water Mm -hmm. we're all swimming in. My dad also said that, by the way. Just shout out to Pops. Yeah. My dad also said that. He said, he said everybody has a bias. Yeah. Just know that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. And so we've all been conditioned this way. Right. And so 
And I do want to stress also for folks who are listening that if the number feels higher to you than 33%, I would trust that instinct. Even the researchers in this study said that if you're working in person, the number is likely higher. And then add to that the fact that they didn't really look at your identity, like they didn't add other elements of identity into this. They just looked at race as a binary of black and white, and they didn't really look at gender. They didn't look at socioeconomic status. They didn't look at sexual orientation, They didn't like gender expression. There are a lot of things that they didn't look at necessarily, right? Because like, as you know, you want to have a limited amount of things that you're looking at and changing in a study, right? Um, but all of those things will contribute to what that number looks like. So we all exist along this spectrum of how fairly <laughs> attention is allocated to us, right? And so that's one side of the equation, right? Like that's one side of the underrecognition coin. Then there's the side that um, your father was talking about, right? That, hey, babe, sorry, you're gonna have to work twice as hard, right? And this is what I call the invisibility tax, right? This is the tax, the extra bit of time, energy, money, sometimes resources, just in general, that underrecognized folks are asked to pay in order to be visible at all, and in fact, to be as visible as their peers who enjoy more environmental protections than they. Um, and when I say environmental protections, I mean privilege, but you know, um, right? Mm -hmm, and so, mm -hmm. so what your father is talking about, right? That needing to work twice as hard. Yeah, that's absolutely a facet of the invisibility tax. Um, another facet that might be familiar to folks is one that I also can't take credit for. This one um, is by a, I'd call her a scholar, yeah, a scholar named Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez, and the term is ambition penalty, right? And so this is when you're under-recognized and you are penalized for being ambitious, right? So just think of, think of any ambitious woman or woman of color that you have seen somewhere in a high-powered space and all of the awful things that they are called or termed or deemed, the ways that they're blocked, that they're dinged and dimed for being ambitious, right? That, that sort of darned if you do, darned if you don't, right? That like, if you are as ambitious as your peers around you, you're seen a certain way. But if you're not as ambitious as them, they say you lack confidence, right? And in fact, this is something, this is what is often mistaken for the confidence gap in women and girls. It's actually an ambition penalty, right? It's no, no, no. We're reacting appropriately to the environment and saying, actually, if I were to demonstrate my ambition, I would be penalized for that. So it is safer mm -hmm. for me to seem like I lack confidence because at least that way I'm not being, I'm not That's paying survival. disability tax, right? You know, you're talking about survival right there, yeah. you know, like, and we, I, I'm feeling it viscerally, like, you know, I'm sure there are, there are, uh, you know, women out there, girls out there who, who know when they had to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you're talking about all those moments where we, 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 we cover, we, we mask our statements as questions. Yes. Yes, <laughs> you exactly. Think, oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. You're <laughs> killing me. So, <laughs> so now that you've sufficiently worn us down <laughs> with all the bad news and, and I, I'm only doing this because we don't have that much time but I would love to at some point I know we're going to continue this conversation yeah, in absolutely. a different forum right for sure but how how does this in, in knowing all of this how are you how are you working to 
change that narrative? I mean, I think I know the answer to that, but I want the people to know. I want the people to know how you are working to change these narratives and these deficits, because that what you're talking about is is fundamental, because that's how people drop out of the workforce. That's how people say, I'm going to start my own business. That's how they say, I'm not going to... I'm not going to interact with people who don't understand or respect what I'm talking about. So what does that look like for you? Exactly. And even when folks leave the workforce to start their own businesses, they come up against that same sort of thing where they're like, am I wearing an invisibility cloak over here? Like, what is going on? Right? Like, I'm doing all the things that my peers are doing and they are way further ahead than I happen to be. Why is that? Like, we're peers. We have the same level of, of experience. We've been in this for the same amount of time, right? We see each other as peers and we know the tactics and approaches and strategies that the other person is using it. They are way further ahead using the same things that I'm using. This is why, right? Mm. And so here's what I do. And I'll, I'll, I'll call in some of my, my past that you spoke to as an international mediator to sort of help illustrate this, right? Mm-hmm. So I was called in as um, a junior member of a team that was consulting on the civil war in Yemen. And I didn't know this at the time, but um, the group that had called us in, the ethnic minority group that had called us in, as far as the UN peace process was concerned, they they weren't part of it, right? Even though they were a pretty sizable chunk of the population in Yemen, right? And so what they wanted was to be part of this really important conversation that was going to be happening about the future of their country. And I think any mediator or conflict resolution specialist usually has gotten into this work because they realize that they can level the playing field as far as the conversations happening at the negotiation table are concerned, right? Like I can be in there and facilitate so that things are fair and everyone can hear each other, right? And there's no big dogs or small dogs, right? Everyone must listen to each other and come to an agreement together. But when the folks that need to be at that table in order for that peace process to actually survive the next five, 10, 20 years, aren't even getting in the door. Uh Uh Right? Uh And so that's when I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Something Uh has to change here, right? Like it's not enough for me to be able to control the, the dynamics in the room. I also have to be able to figure out how to get the right people into the room in the first place. Oh my gosh. And so that's sort of, that's been my work. That's been my journey for almost a decade now. And what I have done is I have taken from my understanding of how human brains work, right? So that includes neuroscience, that includes social psychology, that includes behavioral science, network analysis, all of these lovely things. I've borrowed from all of these traditions and said, okay, how do we design a solution, right? Mm -hmm. Because right now we're in a situation where folks, their behavior is kind of hard set and hardwired, right? They are hardwired to overlook certain kinds of people. And that's why we have the deficits that I was talking about earlier. That's why this group wasn't even in the door as far as this negotiation was concerned, right? And as far as designing a a, a, a solution to behavioral challenges, behavioral design and behavioral science and all of these traditions are really clear on what to do, right? As as soon as you've established that this is a behavioral challenge, 
it's very clear what you have to do in order to, to, to solve for that. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, let's use the principles of behavioral design and come up with a solution to under recognition. And so I did. Hi there, it's me, Christabel Insiabwadi. Thank you so much for listening to Audio Diaspora. Do you like our new name? I love it. Let's keep listening to the conversation. Oh, and by the way, if you want to check out what we're up to or check out our archives, visit our website. We're at audiodiaspora.com. Let's keep listening. How do you, because you're, you're talking about, <laughs> you're talking about changing behaviors, which means really from a from a, a wider perspective when you widen it up changing it's not even about it's not about changing narratives in this case it's actually bringing in more understanding so even though while I talk about changing narratives to bring more understanding what you're saying is that nope that yes and no yes mm-hmm. and yes and. there is a deficit in understanding and even just recognition and so you are literally massaging this hard wiring that people have so that people are actually hearing our narratives. Exactly. So what does that look like on the day to day? Like, give me an example of how you're like, how the penny has dropped. Yeah. For somebody no, who traditionally has overlooked other people. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, well, I can, <laughs> I can finish up the story that I told about this ethnic minority in Yemen and say that. Amazing. We succeeded, right? You know, like that they, they were in the peace talks by the time my, my part in that project or in that file was over, right? They became a part of the peace talks, right? And how we made that happen was multifaceted, right? But if I had to break it down and, and, and I'm thinking about it from the perspective of my, the methodology that I developed, if I had to break it down, the first thing that you want to be able to do is you gotta understand what is who all the stakeholders are in the first place right mm-hmm. and when you're underrecognized that list of stakeholders is a lot longer than you might expect right mm-hmm. most folks will say hey um the folks that you want to pay attention to the folks that you want to you know convince and i say this with air quotes right because convincing is not really what we're trying to do here right but the folks that we're trying to get to that place right trying to get to yes it's just it's just the folks who are like the decision makers. That's all. Those are the only people that you got to pay attention to, right? Sure, if you aren't underrecognized, that might be the case, right? But if you're underrecognized, sometimes you're not even getting in the door. So you've got to be aware of who are the gatekeepers, right? Who are the potential mediators of opportunity for me? Who are potential advocates, right? There's a whole host of stakeholders that you've got to not only be aware of, but also understand the motivations of right? Because once you understand what motivates them, it makes it a lot easier for you to come alongside them and frame the thing that you need in light of that motivation, right? Yeah. But it feels like a lot of people doing work to meet people who aren't listening where they're at. Is that the case? Do you understand what I mean? Say more. Say more about what you mean. So you're, 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 you're meeting the stakeholders, mm. right? The decision makers. If I'm understanding it correctly, you're understanding what they're doing, and then you're 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 working to to meet them where they are. Am I misunderstanding that? 
It depends, right? It does depend. That doesn't always end up being the case. But you can't make a decision about whether or not you want to meet folks where they are or whether or not it's worth it to meet folks where they are without Mm. knowing who the stakeholders are in the first place and what their motivations are, right? Because when Mm -hmm. you uncover motivations, you may find like, this is not a, this is not an ally or a stakeholder that I want anything to do with, right? Or this is not someone who it is like, all I need is is for them to be neutral, right? I don't need them to support this. I just need them to be neutral, right? Like, and Mm, those are things, right? Those are nuances and things that you won't understand without that first foundational understanding. Okay, so that's what I mean. Like, it felt like, if, when you were initially saying that, my response to that was, so you have a decision maker and so you, you have to try and convince the decision maker, which is the thing that gives people fatigue. But then when I, when I pushed you on that, you basically said, no, you need to know who they are so that to de- to decide if you even want to engage with them in the first place or find a different way. Yes. All right. That feels a bit, that feels a bit more like, okay, giving people agency. Cause I was like, oh, ah! yeah. But now, yeah, got it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that another thing that folks tend to overlook as far as engineering visibility is concerned, right? And that's that's really how I think about it. It's really an engineering process. One of the things that folks tend to overlook mm-hmm. is their sphere of influence, right? Mm-hmm. And being really intentional about what that sphere of influence looks like, what it includes, what it does not include right? How it's cultivated over time. Um, And one of the reasons that I love network science so much, right, is because recent research out of network science is showing us that there are certain shapes of networks, right? Like literal shapes, geometric shapes of human relationships that actually contribute to behavior change happening at scale, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And so often when I'm working with clients, what we'll end up doing is we'll end up mapping out their network, right? Graphically in front of us. So we can actually see the geometric shapes of their network. That allows us to say, okay, how closely does your current network match the shape we know is necessary for behavior change to happen at the scale that you need? And if it's not quite there yet, well, we know what the final shape needs to look like. So now all we need to do is set about con- making the right Bringing connection. Bringing them closer, exactly. making the right connection. closer to the appropriate shape, right? So this is another thing that like, there are many pieces to visibility engineering, which is what I call my methodology, right? But these mm-hmm. are some of the some of the key ones that I find folks tend to overlook or not even really be aware of, right? So folks will be like, oh yeah, like you've got a network and you like, it's who you know and all that, right? To that I say, well, sure, but <laughs> you've, A, you've got to do that with intention and B, you have to understand that your network is actually part of something larger. It's part of, again, what I call wow. your sphere of influence, right? And mm. if you are trying to generate influence, right, then you need to be cultivating that sphere of influence intentionally. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that's, those are a few of the things that I would say that are involved and Again, knowing about the stakeholders and what their motivations are, those things are going to be super helpful with expanding that sphere of influence and understanding, do I need to bring this person in or not? Can I leave them at neutral? Can I leave them at negative? 
Can I, you know, like all of these things. It sounds, it's, no, it's, it's really fascinating. I'm sure there are some people who are going, wait, we're talking about creativity and creation. I'm just like, actually, this is, this is exactly what it's about. Because when you're thinking about building your creative community, mm-hmm. or you're thinking about, you know, how am I going to get that, that message out there? It is about the sphere of influence. And yes. what you said that, that really resonated was, was this idea of not realizing how much influence you actually have on the day to day. You know, like people are always talking about network, whether it's like, whether you're a creator, whether you work on the finance side, because being an influencer, right? Like everyone's talking about network, but to your point, like if you don't, if you're not intentional about it, what does it matter? You can know 10, you can have 10,000 people, you can know 10,000 people. What does it matter if you're not intentional about how you're going to get how are you going to get to where you want to get to? And not in a, not in a, um, what's what I'm looking for? Not in a cynical way. Yeah. It's just understanding your influence. And again, I'm, I'm keep on repeating that because really what I heard when you said that was, oh, we all have agency. Yes. We all have power and we don't realize it. So then in these last minutes, I've got to ask you, and I'm, I'm super fascinated. Like I was going to ask you this earlier, but then you really drew me in with this. <laughs> and I really think that people often gravitate to the thing that they didn't get or they're looking for in their lives. How did you end up here? Like what inspired you to do this? And because I'm hearing influence, I'm hearing power, I'm hearing negotiation. What, what got you to this point? What, what was the thing that you were maybe looking for or trying to solve for that got you to be, you know, the, (laughs) the brand scientist? Yeah. So I honestly, I think back to my, youth (laughs) as a younger woman, as a young girl. And I, I was one of those sort of offbeat, precocious kids, right? Um, I was, I was such a weird kid. I was such a weird kid. I, um, I liked writing stories with my friends and building computers and, you know, like I was just like the weirdest, nerdiest child, right? Which for Nigerian parents, a dream, right? They were like, you, oh yeah, God, you you're never us. going out. Yes. Right. You're never going out. You're just going to read books. You're Ex- not going to be looking at boys. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. No dating till you're married. And I was like, cool. Love that for me. <laughs> no dating till you're married. More time for books. Right. Like, <laughs> so I was just the weirdest kid, oddest kid growing up. However, as I did grow up, I especially remember this happening in high school where folks, especially folks in authority, had very specific ideas about how my gift should be used. Um, And they weren't necessarily bad ones, right? Like, I I remember this one teacher who, who suggested that I sing you know, like more Negro spirituals and and Ooh. gospel songs and like and there's nothing wrong with that music. No. I do enjoy it, right? It's fantastic, fantastic. But but also, why me? <laughs> right, right, right. Why did he cho- like? Why did he choose me? One of maybe a handful of black students at this school. I'm certainly not the only person who could sing, right? Um, to say you in particular should consider doing these things, right? 
and like folks enabling me to do that and folks really wanting me to be like the face of of blackness in their community right mm-hmm. and i remember being frustrated by that largely because i thought there were other people who could do a better job than that folks who had mm-hmm. a real interest in that mm-hmm. um and also i i didn't like being pigeonholed right i didn't like being pigeonholed something in yeah. me rebelled at that mm-hmm. and and i think that for the longest time i tried fighting against being pigeonholed right like mm-hmm. i would just go in the exact opposite direction so you know that no nope, opposite no thank you mm-hmm. right and eventually came to a place where i realized that people who were pigeonholing me they weren't being malicious but right. it also wasn't something that they could see beyond mm. and that was something that got my attention because i didn't understand that i didn't understand how folks couldn't just see me as a person as opposed to all of these caveats and then person. And so yeah, that really gosh, be- yeah. Yeah, right? And so that really began my research into okay, like what's happening to these people? Like what's happening in these people's heads? But mm. like ha, can- hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> you most of us would have internalized it and been like, "Oh, what can I do?" And you said, "What's happening in your brain? <laughs> what's happening with you?" <laughs> Which I think is so powerful, so powerful. Listen, it took me a minute to get there, though. Like I didn't. But you know what I mean? It yeah. was just like, "Oh, it's me, it's me," and you're like, "Nice, nah, you. <laughs> That's <laughs> something, incredible. Something's up with you. What's up with you? Something up with you, <laughs> homie. I'm gonna figure this out." <laughs> And listen, I definitely had my journey to get here, right? Like I, for the longest time, I was like, okay, maybe I'm doing something to like signal this. And so like, let Mm. me, and that led to a whole, let me not even, another podcast. That's for, that's it. I was going to say, that's for another episode. Another episode. Absolutely invite you back for, (laughs) yeah. But eventually that's where I got to. I'm like, something's like, what's happening in your head that you literally cannot see me beyond this thing, right? Wow. And that's sort of what began it. Like I started looking at, okay, like what, like why do people have certain associations culturally? And like, what is mechanically happening in the brain? And Mm. that led me to exploring different cultures and saying, okay, like in the West, light and dark have certain connotations, but in Japan, they're very different up until a point, right? Like they had Mm -hmm. different associations with light and darkness up until, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Americans Mm -hmm. entered society Uh in Japan, right? And so Uh realizing that and being like, what, why is that happening, right? And so I, I traveled all over the world trying to understand where there was difference why there was difference, what contributed to that, and then like what was happening in people's heads that led there. And eventually, <laughs> eventually I, you know, wow, that led me to conflict resolution where I said, okay, well, I know a lot about different cultures and how people think and how that contributes to how they behave. Let's see if I can leverage that stuff to like literally make peace a more viable option. And right. and now I'm here, right? Now I'm here. <laughs> wow, what's what's next for you? Oh goodness. Um 
Well, I am, um, I've been very fortunate that lots of people seem interested in my ideas and in my research. And so um, more writing, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. There are some universities that are interested in the work that I do as far as underrecognition is concerned and bringing in um, anti-racist policies to a bunch of different institutions and leveraging visibility engineering to ensure that those policies are um, fairly considered, get past visibility biases and the invisibility tax and are hopefully adopted, right? Um, I'm also going to start teaching people how to do what I do. So I've started putting together a certification. Congrats. Um, thank you so much. Um, so, you know, just like lots, there's lots going on and um, lots to explore and lots that I'm um, excited to play with. But um, at the end of the day, I think the thing that ties all of those things together is that I'm going to keep digging into under-recognition. I'm going to keep finding new visibility biases. I'm going to keep finding new facets of the invisibility tax and developing new strategies and tactics within my framework for how we either neutralize those things, circumnavigate them, or whatever else needs to happen. So... Congratulations, Chloe Wangwu. I mean, I got to say, I think the conversation between you and I is going to continue because I see ways in which we could work together in terms of supporting and, cre and, and supporting creators in particular to kind of like, because these are roadblocks. We get distracted by the stuff and you've kind of gone by saying, no, it's not me, it's you. What's wrong with you? I'm going to keep saying that. Um, it helps us circumnavigate. And so I would love to continue having this conversation and maybe figure out how, you know, we can work together or how we can have these conversations with creators about providing those tools so that you, you know, you guys out there who are listening um, can continue to do the work, you know, because there's a reason why a show like mine exists where we're I'm talking about redefining narratives. It's because we're, it's, it's that, it's that deficit that you were talking about yeah. and the ways in which we, we, we work. And so there's a tax that we pay for that. How do we do that without paying that tax? Yeah. That's what I'm really fascinated with. I would love to continue this conversation offline, but in the meantime, Chloe, <laughs> Chloe Wangwu, thank you so much. The brand scientist. Tell us really quickly where we can get you online. Yes, absolutely. So if you are interested in um, staying abreast of like new things that I happen to find, right? So if I have new research that comes out or a new thing that I discovered, I'm on LinkedIn. Look me up by my name. You'll be able to find me there. Follow me. Um, feel free to reach out if you have questions about anything that I've said today on um, on the show. Um, if you're someone who's more like, you know what, I just kind of want to be in her world and to um, hear you know, about things that she's noticing. I'm also on Instagram. I share a lot of really interesting things in my stories. So please feel free to join me there. Um, and finally, I will say that if you have real questions, like burning questions, and you're like, I need you to answer them now. Every month I host a visibility clinic. Um, they are complimentary. Uh, and so I invite you to join me, ask me any questions that you have, and I will be happy to answer. I love that. I will, we're, I'm looking at doing some live events in the in the near future. I would love to invite you back and maybe we can partner up and do some of those clinics as well. I Chloe, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to Audio Diaspora with me, Christabel Insiabwedi. If you want to check out our older shows when we were called The Cypher and also our new Audio Diaspora shows, visit our website. We are at audiodiaspora.com. We're also on the social medias. You can check us out on X at Audio Diaspora. I did not produce this show alone. The team includes Eugene Kidd, Cerise Small and Larissa Witcher. Thank you again for listening and join us next time. Audio Diaspora is a production of My Lens Media.